From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I talk about what I call the nihilism of grace. Hmm. And that is, you know, suppose the physicists are right, which is that the sun is, and we have every reason to think they are right, that the, that the sun is expanding, the earth will be burnt up and, you know, will be in another half a billion or a billion years, whatever it is, that the earth will be toast and the sun will, will suffer soul or death and uh, eventually the entire universe will just expand into, into to just utterly dissipate into pure entropy. Well then, does that make our lives meaningless? Well, of course not. It, it makes this moment of cosmic life uh, all the more precious and all the more meaningful. My guest is John Caputo. He is the Watson Professor of Religion Emeritus at Syracuse University and the Cook Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Villanova University. He's a philosopher and theologian working in the area of radical theology. We're going to talk about what radical theology is. He's the author of many books, including The Insistence of God and The Weakness of God. His latest book is called The Folly of God, A Theology of the Unconditional. Welcome, Dr. Caputo, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. The Folly of God, A Theology of the Unconditional, is published by Polbridge Press, the publishing arm of West Star Institute, uh, commonly known as the Jesus Seminar, scholars working to uncover the historical origins of Christianity, including uh, the historical figure of Jesus. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, when, I was, uh, when I asked my history or New Testament professors about theological matters, they often referred me to the theologians. And the theologians, when I asked about historical matters, uh, referred me to the historians. I, I found it somewhat frustrating that these disciplines were so distinct. Can historians and theologians and philosophers find a common ground? Well, that's the space I try to inhabit myself. I like to uh, keep keep an ear open to uh, what's going on in historical uh, Jesus research when I'm when I, uh, when I'm thinking about Christianity, and um, keep my I own theological questions because my my I'm not a historian. I'm a I'm a, a philosopher or a philosophical theologian, or what nowadays a lot of people call. I think it I think it helps attract a crowd. A lot of people a lot of us call it radical theology. Um, so, and I'm not a professional historian, but I have a great deal of uh, admiration for the historians, and. Uh, this Folly of God book is uh, a West Star Institute production, as you uh, mentioned, and it's intended in particular to follow up on the Jesus Seminar. They, they host a series of seminars uh, in addition to the Jesus Seminar. That was by far the most famous. Uh, but this one is meant as a kind of uh, follow-up to the Jesus Seminar, and if the Jesus Seminar was asking about who Jesus was, the God Seminar, its point of departure at least, is uh, who is the God of who this Jesus was. If you think of Jesus in the radical terms that the Jesus Seminar uh, poses, that's, that's our point of departure. It won't be where we finish, but it'll be where, we, where we're starting. Well, let's talk about that uh, phrase, radical theology. What is radical theology? 
Well, one, uh, perhaps the simplest way to think about it is to say that it takes religious language to be symbolic, and then you'd be sort of putting it the way mm -hmm. Paul Tillich put it. Religious language is symbolic language. If you literalize it, then you you contract theology into um, a sort of, a, a really an idol, I think, is, again, the way Tillich would put it. Uh, if you if you take the the sayings of of the New Testament as representing historical facts of the matter, then you know that's a kind of idolatry. To say that it's symbolic is not to trivialize it or reduce it to something uh, that's not serious, because symbols are serious. And so, what radical theology is trying to do is find out what's seriously at issue in in religious language and that's one way to put it and uh, the other way to put it is uh, it, to make a distinction between beliefs which are sort of the, the standard fare of confessional uh, of the confessional traditions a body of beliefs which you could distinguish from a, an, a deeper or underlying faith so that someone's life might be structured in terms of a deep faith, but they wouldn't be necessarily tied up with creeds and, and uh, confessional belief. Is that what you mean when no. you write that uh, theology begins with atheism? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, that's, you know, it's a way to draw, again, it's a way to draw a crowd. Uh -huh. uh, but I think any good... Uh, Theology would begin with a, a an atheistic moment in which it is um, trying to keep its distance from uh, theological idols, from uh, the, the sorts of ideas of God that we want to avoid. And you know, the great the great mystics used to get themselves in trouble because they sounded like atheists, and they were indeed you know, uh, mystics of a sort. There is a kind of mystical atheism which says that the, that the to this or that idea of God, the proper theological response, the proper religious response, is, is atheism. Because the God that truly interests us is not confinable to that concept, that, that, that finite idea. Any good theology would have a would begin with an an atheistic moment. Well, because the common uh, understanding of God, perhaps by ninety nine percent of of the world who ever used the term, is that God is some supernatural being or force. And uh, as I understand uh, from reading your book, that you would say that that uh, that question really has is meaningless. Well, I would say that it's mythical, it's, it's magical, it's, uh, that supernaturalism is superstitious, uh, mm -hmm. and it's allowing itself to be trapped by uh, literalism. It's taking, it's taking that kind of language to refer to an entity out there, a supreme entity up there, outside of space and time, as a kind of super being or a superhero who um, has a big plan and who's going to make all things work unto good in the end. And that, I think, is um, 
something like you know the ancients believing that thunder was a god and the sun was a god and uh, it's 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 a, it's a kind of extension of paganism into uh, monotheism and i i think of god in more more radical terms than that i, I think it's a I don't think that God is a, is an entity out there, that God exists in that sense, and that if you get in trouble, you um, can get some kind of supernatural assistance out of that trouble. Well, has this three-letter word, G-O-D, God, lost its meaning? I mean, is there a sense in which uh, we might abandon its use and find another word? Uh, I think a lot of people have, particularly today, and I think that that, that that's one option. Um, and uh, it may be, I mean, who knows what's in the future, uh, it may be the, the tendency of history, I mean, who, who knows. But uh, it's it certainly, uh, at least from a strategic point of view, I think not, not a good idea, because the word, as you say, has... Uh, so much play for so many people and that's because I think something is going on in that word so I you know I I don't give up on it I think that something the way I like to put it is I think that something is getting itself done and getting itself said in the name of God but we need to keep we need to figure out what that is, and we need to keep it free from mythological representations. You're listening to Progressive Spirit with John Chuck. My guest is John Caputo. He's the author of The Folly of God, A Theology of the Unconditional, the book we're speaking about today. Theology of the Unconditional. Um, what is this unconditional, and how do, can you know that there is such a thing as an unconditional? Is that a matter of faith or science? Well, I don't think there is such a thing as the unconditional. I think mm-hmm. that, that what I use the notion of unconditional to um, unpack, right, to analyze, to, ex- to explicate what I think is going is going on in the name of God. So I think the name of God is uh, the name of an unconditional claim or call or uh, desire or dream uh, that uh, is constantly uh, disturbing our day-to-day life, something that uh, haunts us like a, like a spook or a spirit or a ghost, which um, keeps us restless. You know, the beginning of St. Augustine's Confessions, our, our hearts are restless in quietum est nostrum. Our hearts are restless and they will not rest until they rest in thee. So I think of God uh, calling us, something disturbing us, something soliciting us in an unconditional way, calling for a kind of unconditional affirmation uh, of life. The name of God is not the name of a being. It's the name of some kind of unconditional uh, concern uh, of ours. Yeah, you talk about uh, that God or the unconditional does not exist but insists. So uh, it's it's hard to make that distinction between if there is a, a calling that there isn't a caller. 
But that's the distinction I think you're making, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I want to say something is getting itself called in the name of God. Something, Mm -hmm. you know, um, like like the prophets. When the prophets speak about God, they they speak of God in terms of justice. justice, the name of God is the name of justice. It's the promise of justice. Now, I think that's true. I think the name of God is the name of the promise of justice. And so John, justice, justice is always out there. It's always, uh, it's always calling us. It's, o- it's what we call for. It's what we uh, seek, desire, love, affirm. And it, and it claims us unconditionally. I mean, we may we may resist it, or we may defy it, or ignore it, but the the claim is unconditional. The the name of God is one of the ways in which that that call for justice uh, gets articulated. Now, you know, I don't, I'm not saying it's the only way, but I'm saying it it, it, it is one way. It is it's a, as Tillich put it, it's a matter of ultimate concern for us and. The name of God is one of the ways in which we give name to our ultimate concern, but it doesn't. It, it exists in the sense that it's it, it's always it, it must justice must be realized to some extent or another, or the world would just be a fierce jungle. Um, so it's always it's always realized, but it's always promised. So it's a it's a little bit like a Messiah who never quite shows up. You know who's coming is, whose being lies in, in coming, in, in being promised. It's, it's always partly realized, but, but always, therefore, unrealized, always calling for more. So we're always restless for justice. We want justice to flow like water over the, over the land, the prophet says, Amos says. But it does, that's uh, not what happens. But that factual inexistence of justice is, in a way, testimony to its, uh, its insistence, its call, its solicitation, its, uh, our desire for justice. You know, you write uh, in a, a really a touching uh, couple of pages about the musicians on the Titanic playing as the ship sinks, uh, and you call it an act of courage, and, and I think, is this an anticipation of this unconditional uh, humanity saying, I exist despite it all. Is that, is that part of this? It's, uh, yeah, it's a very good example. Uh, you know, my, the, the thing is in the movie, I could never quite figure out. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody, I'm not sure anybody really knows. In the movie, they were playing nearer my God to thee, mm-hmm. which means that they were, you know, they, it was a religious, it was a moment of it was a religious moment for them. Now, I would actually prefer that they would be atheists, and they were play, and they were playing their music because their music was because their music was beautiful, and mm-hmm. it was they they were sort of saying this is what life will have been. This is they they were affirming the unconditional quality and the unconditional value of their music, of their art, of beauty, and therefore of life itself. And they weren't scrambling to save their hides, you know, and they, they were over and above, they were being courageous, but over and above being courageous, they were affirming 
unconditionally the quality, the value, uh, the sacredness even of life. So, so there would be a very good example. Now, let's suppose we really, you know, we don't know what they were playing, and I don't know. They probably were not atheists, but 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 one could imagine that they were atheists who were doing this not because they thought they were going to go to heaven, but because they wanted to say this is what life will have been as we now go down into the deep. Um, and they really did do that. I was, you know, what made me write that passage was I happened to be in Belfast, where there's a big uh, Titanic museum, because that's where the Titanic was built. And um, that's one of the things in the museum, that those musicians really were, uh, really did do that. The survivors testified that the, the string quartet kept playing until they couldn't, which was a remarkable moment. You know, and... and so what I wanted to say was, well, look, you know, here is a religious act, and it would be even more perfect if they were atheists, if they didn't think they were going to heaven. The reality of the religious would not be that there's a, there's a supreme being in another world who is going to reward us for being good, but the reality of the religious would be the affirmation of the intrinsic uh, dignity and worth and value of life. Yeah, or that, uh, or that uh, God is some kind of being that could have saved them or chose not to, or any of those theological arguments you're talking about. So whatever, exactly. God, God is this, this poetic aspect of life. Yeah, or a theopoetic. Where theopoetic. You, you know, a cold-hearted atheist would say, well, then it's only poetry. And I would say, well, if you know what poetry is, you would never say only poetry, because poetry is capturing something profound, something deep, something unconditional about our lives. Well, you know, connecting that theopoetics uh, with the historical Jesus, or, or however we can get to that fuzzy figure, uh, who spoke uh, parabolically about the kingdom of God. Is that, in essence, kind of this, uh, this theological move um, to talk about it uh, poetically as the kingdom of God, this mustard seed, not necessarily the power of a being, but um, the anticipation of, of uh, this lure, this uh, call among us. Yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, then, if, if theology is theopoetics, then the kingdom of God is the great poem uh, that Jesus mm -hmm. proffers. And it's a vision of God with us, God in us, living in us living life in such a way that that the name of God is what rules, not the the powers and the principalities, as St. Paul says. It's what life would be like if God ruled. And the thing is, the thing that I'm, I'm trying to do is to say that the kingdom of God is that form of life. It's not a reward for this for, for doing well in this life. It's it's the, the parables, the um, what what Jesus enjoins upon us, the the Sermon on the Mount. That that's not a recipe for getting to heaven and getting the kingdom of God as a reward. That is the kingdom of God. Hmm. The kingdom of God is what's enacted by the in the Sermon on the Mount. What's enacted by living. Uh, 
according to the uh, the parables and, and uh, the, the folly of uh, forgiving your uh, trespassers and and loving your enemies so it's a it's a, the foolishness of God is uh, to lay aside that self-aggrandizement and self-seeking and to uh, Live according to the kingdom. Live according to the precept of uh, uh, of love and mercy and compassion and hospitality and all the things that are described and being uh, depicted in Jesus's discourse on uh, the kingdom of God. So the, the kingdom of God is a theopoetics. It's a it's a and, and also you could say I mean more more Greek now, but you could say a theoprosis. It's a way of bringing God into practice, enacting God. So that means that the kingdom of God is something that's being called for, and it's realized or is actualized in our lives. Religion for me is a form of life, not a form of afterlife. Progressive Spirit. Spirituality. Social justice. ProgressiveSpirit.net John Caputo is my guest, the author of The Folly of God, A Theology of the Unconditional. You know, weak theology, or a theology of the folly of God, uh, is tough for a lot of people. Uh, you think of the theological task of deconstruction, right? Religion is a human construct, and, uh, and the risk uh, for many is that if we deconstruct, there may be nothing left to construct. This deconstruction perhaps like a peeling of an onion. Uh, that's the fear, isn't it? I hear now and then that, well, if my faith is deconstructed, if God is no longer a powerful being, uh, what's left? What's, what's the hope of, of deconstruction? It's the, the hope of life itself. If you say, well, look, mm -hmm. if there's no God, what's left? Well, what's left is the world. What's left is... Uh -huh. It is life itself. It's everything around us. It's all of the, um, the, the, the majesty and the miseries of, of life itself. One, one way I put that is uh, I talk about what I call the nihilism of grace. Hmm. And that is, you know, suppose the physicists are right, which is that the sun is, and we have every reason to think they are right, that the, that the sun is expanding, the earth will be burnt up, and, you know, will be you know, another half a billion or a billion years, whatever it is, that the earth will be toast and the sun will, will suffer soul or death and eventually the entire universe will just expand into, into to just utterly dissipate into pure entropy. Well then, does that make our lives meaningless? Well, of course not. It, it makes this moment of cosmic life uh, all the more precious and all the more meaningful because it it it, it uh, emerges as uh, this precious moment this this time this fleeting cosmic moment when life in all of its uh, uh, beauty and power and, and majesty and and misery uh, happened so uh, I use the analogy of two lovers who cling to each other all the more tightly during the night because they know that in the morning they have to part. It doesn't destroy their love, it makes it more intense. So um, I, d I don't think that we have to think that life is only justified if there is some reward for it. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, I think so many people think like you do, but don't think that uh, religion is helpful there. Um, that religion is so much concerned with uh, promises of, of, uh, of everything working out just right if we obey the being and all of that kind of stuff. But, uh, and, and so in a sense, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that there's a way to connect um, perhaps with the uh, religious and theological and philosophical traditions and yet understand that, that, that life is here in this moment and, and how we live it is the way to do it. Yeah, because if you just simply write religion off, I mean, what you just said is huh. quite right. Because when you get done listening to the sort of following the line of argument that I am, you say, well, why don't you just give up? Just get rid of this word religion and just go, go about it some other way. Drop religion because more often than not, religion is the source of this problem, not the solution. And my answer is, well, I can't. Uh, because... Uh, if you just simply drop these religious discourses, what you're going to get are a lot of other things like philosophy, for example. And I, my professional training and my life as a professor was spent in the philosophy department. And I have some knowledge of the history of philosophy. And trust me, you can read it from one end to the other and you won't find the Sermon on the Mount. You won't find the sort of things that, uh, you, that, that uh, are expressed in, in the, the, what is called the kingdom of God in uh, the New Testament. That is, religious voices have a, have a unique and irreducible contribution to make. The problem is that they, they get turned into uh, institutionalized creedal systems, um, economies of salvation. They become instruments of you know, our own self-aggrandizement and self-acquisition. Uh, and systems of rewards and punishment, and they get caught up in a lot of things that, that ruin them. And de deconstruction is a way of trying to break through all of that and to recover that uh, poetic vision of life that they, they contain. Because I think all the great religious traditions have, are, are a kind of poetry about existence, which you won't find if you just give religion up and turn to a more rational way of thinking, rationalistic way of thinking about things, you won't find, the, you won't find a philosopher advising you to love your enemies. Hmm. Yeah, John Caputo, my guest, The Folly of God, A Theology of the Unconditional, a book I strongly recommend. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Caputo, for being with me today. My pleasure, John. Thanks for inviting me. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Find links to podcasts and more information about Progressive Spirit at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Produced at KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schott. Be well.